got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. And we will be in John 16. John 16, looking at verses 16 through 33 this morning. John 16, 16 through 33. So just a quick recap, kind of give us a running start where we are. Uh, we are in the middle of this thing called the farewell discourse, the upper room discourse. So this is the night before Jesus is killed. He's here with his disciples. He's in a room, and he's giving them parting instructions. So it's about five hours long of the master with his disciples. And he's telling them, this is the way in which you should live. These are the problems that you will face. And so as we come now in 16 through 33, this is the very tail end of this conversation. This is the very end as Jesus recaps kind of his final words to his disciples is where we will be today. And in this kind of final section we've seen from 15 up through the end of the chapter, Jesus has kind of transitioned and laid out for them that there will be, as they go into the world to bear witness about Jesus, they will experience the hatred of the world. 15, 18 through 16, 3. But God will not leave them alone. He will send the help of his spirit. We saw in 16, 4 through 15. And ultimately, the spirit is lifting our eyes to have the hope of heaven. We'll see today in 16 through 33. So the disciples experiencing the hatred of the world with the help of the spirit, all for the hope of heaven. And so we'll be looking at that hope here this morning. So John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. Jesus tells his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Now Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Well, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask anything of me. You will ask nothing of me, and truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. For in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I 
have overcome the world. So this is one of those sermons for me. I get done reading it, and I feel like no matter what I say, all I can do is just like, screw it up. Like, it's just, I feel like this is one of those, there's just so much good. You just kind of drop the mic and go sit down. It's like whenever I do weddings, I'm like, listen, I've got nothing to do here but just not mess up. That's my goal. Um, there's just so many sweet promises we hear from our Savior as he looks at his disciples and he looks at us and he tells us this hope that we can have. In the midst of that, as we lift our eyes and begin to look to eternity, he's promising us two things. He's promising us permanent joy and transcendent peace. Permanent joy and transcendent peace. We see in verses 16 through 24, he says, here is permanent joy that's offered to you. And then in 25 through 33, that there is a transcendent peace. Now, in each of these two points, we're going to look at three things underneath them. I'm going to go through them quickly since it's a larger chunk we're looking at this morning. Um, if there's any questions you've got, come talk to me afterwards. I can't drill down into everything here this morning, but I want to get a sense of what the main point is that Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples. So first, permanent joy. We see a few things here as Jesus offers them joy despite confusion. He offers them joy amidst sorrow, and he offers them joy through asking. The first, joy despite confusion. In verses 16 through 18, we hear the disciples kind of bickering back and forth with each other. As they're like, listen, what is, what is he talking about? I'll see you for a little while, and you're not going to see me, and then you will see me again. And I just don't understand. And there's, there's a part, there's a big part of me that is just so grateful that the disciples are idiots. Because I'm an idiot. And whenever I read this, I go, okay, thank God I'm not the only one that sometimes has a hard time understanding what Jesus is saying, what it is the Bible is saying here. These were the disciples, the one who went and took the message that God would give to them to spread across the world, that wrote some of the books of the New Testament. They looked at each other and were like, man, I don't understand what he's saying. And I'm so glad that God chose sovereignly to choose morons like that to be a part of that story, to be able to encourage morons like me. And that's also, for me, part of the reason why I trust the Bible, because if the disciples are writing this, you got to think they would just, like, edit those parts out. Like, oh, here's the part where I look like an idiot. We'll just, we won't write that. We'll write more about the time when I was brave and walking on water, and we'll just stop before the whole drowning thing happens. But, no, they include every detail, even the details that made them look stupid. You would think that would discredit their testimony. But yet they had no choice but to write what happened because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is the very word of God. And so they were confused trying to figure out what it was Jesus was saying. He was still offering them joy in the midst of that confusion. But then in verses 19 through 22, we see Jesus offer them joy amidst sorrow. And this is what I think is kind of the main thrust here at the, at the conclusion of this uh, section. As Jesus has just told them, you will go into the world and the world will hate you. You will feel opposition. Not only will they hate you, they'll cast you out of your synagogues. Your social circumstances, you will be an outcast. You will be dislocated. And that's a real kind of persecution. Not only will you be dislocated socially, but they will even kill you thinking they're offering a service to God. And so there will be pain on the future. And this runs in complete contrast to what the disciples had figured in their mind was about to happen. We talked some last week, but we have to try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. What were their expectations? What did they think was about to happen? Why were they following Jesus, and who did they think the Messiah was? 
Well, in their picture of what the Messiah was bringing, they thought that this promised Messiah from the Old Testament would bring them back to the days of David and Solomon and the temple and all of its glory and overthrow the Roman oppression and that this Messiah, this Jesus, this rabbi would be the one to ascend to the top and he would be more powerful than any of the people in the Old Testament, any of the heroes from the Old Covenant. And they would be his right-hand man. They'd get a piece of that power. They were arguing over who was going to have the highest seats of authority. And this was their expectation. This was their dream. And now all of a sudden, their teacher's telling them, I'm leaving. You can't come with me, and the world will hate you and kill you. Their dreams and their expectations were dashed. And how many of us have felt like that before? Where our lives maybe don't turn out quite like we thought. Maybe you're in your 30s or 40s and you just begin to sit back and go, man, I thought that my life would look a lot different than it does right now. Maybe you've gone into retirement and you had all these dreams of what the retirement life would look like and it's just not what you had hoped. And your dreams have fallen short. Your expectations are unmet. Your family doesn't look like you had always dreamed it would. You have a hard family. And we've all felt that sense of what it feels like to have our dreams dashed, our dreams not realized, our dreams deferred. But Jesus is telling his disciples something here that is so relevant to us today. That Jesus is telling them, his disciples, as you had pictures of what your life would look like, but I have something far greater. Now it looks different than what you dreamed, but trust me, there is a story that I'm painting that is far greater than you can imagine. And you will go through sorrow and you will go through tribulation and how you had pictured your mind for your life to work out may be different, but trust me, if you follow me, it may be different, but it will be so much better. And there is joy in the midst of it and all of the sorrow and all of the pain that you might experience. Friends, God is often weaving a story that we are unaware of. In the midst of our lives, in the midst of unmet expectations and dreams that are dashed, God is using every single thread to weave together this beautiful tapestry in the story of redemption. And we may not be able to see it from this side of eternity, but God sees every bit of it, and he is using every bit of it. As he tells his disciples, yes, you will be sorrowful in verse 20, but your sorrow will turn into joy. There is a joy you can have amidst the sorrow as he uses every single piece of it. Uh, somebody a few months ago told me, uh, shared with me this poem by Corrie ten Boom uh, called The Crown. If you're unfamiliar with Corrie ten Boom, she was a Dutch watchmaker in the uh, 1900s. Uh, she lived uh, over around Germany in World War II, and her and her family would take in Jews and hide them in the closet to be able to protect them from Uh, the Nazi and the Gestapo. Well, she was found out in February of 1944, and her, her father, and her sister were all arrested, put into prison. Now, her father died in a Nazi prison not long after that, and then later that year, her sister died as they were transferred to a political concentration camp. Right before her sister died, her sister looked at her and told her that there is no pit, that God is not deeper still. And I just can't help but long for that kind of faith, to be able to say that in the midst of a concentration camp, to look at my sister, to be able to say that. Well, eventually, Corey was released from the concentration camp, but not after losing her father and her sister. And to say that she had gone through sorrow and experienced pain would be an understatement. 
and went through all of that doing what was the Lord's work, protecting and saving people who were created in the image of God, who have eternal and infinite worth. But yet, whenever she was older in life, she wrote this poem as she reflected back on all of the story and all of the pain that she experienced. She called it the crown. She said, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver and the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. As she looked back on her life, that was her summary of what God was doing in the midst of all of it. And in the Corrie Ten Boom Museum, there is a picture of the crown, actually, that she has this poem next to. And you can see the upper and the underside of the tapestry. And on the back, it looks like my 15-month-old daughter put that together. As it just kind of looks like thread that's thrown together. There's no real discernible reason. But on the other side, you see what it's created. This beautiful weaving and tapestry. And Corey said, this is what God was doing in the midst of every single one of my life. There were dark threads and there were gold threads. But the weaver was using them all skillfully and intricately to paint this beautiful picture to complete his story of redemption. That yes, there is sorrow, but he has promised that there will be a day when that sorrow will end and it will turn into joy. And no one can take that from me. And so we see then, okay, well, there is a day when that sorrow will end and there's joy that we can have in the midst of it in verse 20, that our sorrow will turn into joy. But when, when will that sorrow turn into joy? When will that happen? Well, Jesus continues in verse 21 and gives an illustration. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now listen, cards on the table. I have no idea what it's like to be pregnant. Not a clue. Using my deductive reasoning, it looks uncomfortable. It sometimes looks painful. I'm not going to step back and assume that I know the experience. That's not what I'm doing. But I am going to say that it looks difficult. But Jesus here steps in and he says, listen, your life here today is like a woman who is giving birth, who's pregnant and giving birth. That there is pain and there is discomfort but there is a time when that sorrow will end. And so while I can't imagine what it's like, I, I did go to Leah and I said, Leah, what do you think of this verse? Because you've gone through it. You've experienced it. What do you think of this? So she read it and her exact quote to me, because after she read it, I went to my computer and make sure to write it down word for word. I said, Leah, is this true for you? Do you think this is true? And she goes, Caleb, the world would not be populated if this wasn't true. If there wasn't joy attached to the experience of childbirth, there isn't a woman walking on the face of the earth that would just sign up for it voluntarily. So what is it that's caused all of us to be here? For our mothers to make the choice and go, you know what, I want to have a child and go through that. It's the joy of having a child. It's the joy that comes on the other end of it. That's why children keep happening. And so we know, and in, in the midst of it, I was asking Leah what it is that as she was going through the pregnancy with Millie, what was it that she would go through to look towards, to help get her through those times when it was harder? And she said, I always look at the due date and think about what it would be like on that day whenever I would hold her for the first time. 
I'd finally get to see her, not on a sonogram, but face to face. We'd get to hold her. And throughout that process, as there would be discomfort and shorter and shorter um, uh, times to be able to sleep at night and more discomfort rising, we'd begin to wonder with anticipation what that day would be like. As the day started getting closer and the excitement and anticipation grew, we started looking more and more and began to realize what would that day be like. Well, then the due date came and passed. And our daughter still wasn't here. And boy, you thought January was long. Those days after a due date are the longest hours in the world. Time ticks by. It barely moves. And it got to the point no longer it was like, oh, I can't wait for a daughter. It was just like, I'm just ready for this baby to be out of my body. I'm ready for this process to be over and to hold her. And so it was twofold. One, it was uh, Leah was ready for the pain and discomfort to be older, over, but she was also ready to see her daughter face to face. There were these kind of two twin things that were building the anticipation. I'm just ready for the process and the pain to be over, and I'm ready to see my daughter. Well, friends, it's the same with us in our spiritual life as Jesus connects it in 22. He says, so you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Listen, Jesus here is making the same kind of comparison that Paul makes in Romans 8. In this life between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, his first advent and his second advent, all in this process between the already and the not yet, we live in a time of pregnancy and the pains of childbirth. And not just we, Paul even in Romans 8 says creation also is groaning together with the pains of childbirth until the revealing of the sons of God, until Jesus comes back, until that day. And so we live right now in the midst of the pain and discomfort of this life, in the midst of the sorrow and tribulation. But Jesus is telling us, he's telling his disciples that while you go through this, there is a day coming when that will end and you will no longer remember the pain you will no longer remember the anguish and you will see me face to face. In the same way for us, our twin longings for us as we look forward to that day as we are ready for the pain and discomfort of this world to be over and we long to see our Savior face to face as we begin to lift our eyes and look forward to, in essence, the due date of all of creation when Jesus returns and he finishes his work of redemption. We look forward to that day. And as we fix our eyes there, we're able to then have joy here today in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain. The hope of your tomorrow brings the joy of your today. The hope of your tomorrow brings the joy of your today. As we look forward to that day, realizing what Jesus will bring with him. Next, we also see Jesus tell his disciples there's joy through asking in verses 23 and 24. It says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is telling them, you no longer have to ask through me, but you can ask the Father directly in my name. And there is now, for the first time in the history of redemption, direct access to the Father. This has never happened before. And this is for us, I think, a bit where we start to lose kind of the culture of the church has kind of got us numb to how shocking these verses are, that humanity would have direct access to God. In a sense where Jesus is our homeboy and God just loves and is kind of this picture of this meek and mild who never do anything wrong, we have in a sense lost the picture of God's holiness and his justice and his view towards sin. 
And his response to sin is his wrath to punish anything that brings evil to those that he loves. And he is holy, and there is no chance that sin can enter into the presence of a holy God without being consumed. It's why you look in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelt in one room and was separated by a veil. And there was one man who could walk in there one time a year. He was the high priest who represented the entire nation of Israel. And he could only walk in after doing a number of ceremonies and rituals, making sure that he was clean to be able to go and represent the people before God to atone for their sins for the year. And even then, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he did something wrong and dropped dead and no one had to go and get him. They could just pull him out and not have to die. That's what happens when sin meets holiness. And friends, that's what should happen to us when we come in contact with God. But there is something drastically different that's happened now. That through the cross, Jesus took on himself the punishment for our sin. And that veil which separated us from God was torn in two, Luke writes. And we now can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can walk confidently into the presence of God. We can walk and have direct access to the Father. Even though we still continue to sin, continue to fall short, Christ has defeated every one of our sins. He has taken on himself the punishment and the wrath that was meant for us so that we are now clothed in his righteousness. And as we boldly approach the throne, it's not on our own merit. It's through the merit of Christ that's given to us. And so we don't have to walk trembling, not sure what's going to happen. We can walk boldly into the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us. That we now have this direct access to be able to ask whatever it is that we want in the Father's name. And he will give it to us if it's in Christ's name, if it's accordance to who he is, his character, and his will. Friends, that's astounding. And that should make us shake as we wonder how in the world could a wretch like me, who's declared war against a holy God, now through faith be able to boldly approach the throne of grace as we step back and we worship the one who made it possible. And we can then experience that joy through that access as God grants us our prayers in accordance to his will and our joy is made full. And so we see the joy that we experience. We have joy through uh, confusion, joy amidst sorrow, and joy through asking. But secondly, Jesus says, not only will you have joy, but you also have peace, a transcendent peace in verses 25 through 33. And three things underneath here we see this peace we have is because of faith. Not only is it because of faith, but the peace is given despite misbelief. And finally, the peace is given through victory. So quickly, we'll move through these three. This transcendent peace that Jesus offers here is because of faith. This peace that Jesus offers his disciples, we see, is not just based on our circumstances. That's what the world will often tell you. If your life is going good, you're going to have peace. If it's not, you're going to have anxiety. It's going to be sorrowful. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have fear. But Jesus tells them something different. As he tells them that the hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now look at verse 26. It says, in that day you will ask in my name. And you hear kind of the echoes of what he just told the disciples here. We have this direct access. You'll be able to ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So again, Jesus is saying, I'm stepping out of the way and you now have direct access to God because of my mediatorial work on the cross. But why? Why do we have that access? Verse 27, 
because the Father himself loves you. Our access to the Father is based on his love for us. And so for some of you this morning, I don't want to breeze past this because often we can read the Bible and we kind of just gloss right by things. Some of you need to hear this one sentence this morning. The Father himself loves you. Just let that try to sink in. You hear the intense, individual, emotional, personal, and relational love of God for people. This is not like just saying, hey, I love America, or I love the New Orleans Saints. Kind of generally speaking, large groups. Or even from God's perspective, God saying, I love the church. Although he certainly does, and we see that throughout scriptures. That's not what he's saying here. Or even saying that God loves Grace Claremont. No, he's saying that God loves Phil. That God loves Bill. That God loves Abel. That God loves Mike. That God loves Jerry. That God himself loves you. God is individual. He is personal. And he wants to know and love you. And because of that love, we have access to him. This is true in any of our lives. For me, there's one person in my life that has access to me no matter what I'm doing. That's my wife. Doesn't matter if I'm in a meeting. Doesn't matter if I'm anywhere. If I have cell service, she can get a hold of me. She calls me twice in a row. Whatever I'm doing, I drop it. I walk outside and I talk to her. She has direct access to me because I love her and I want to be a part of her life. I want to be able to stand by her no matter what is going on. And that access that she has to me is based on my love for her and is the same here as Jesus says, that I won't have to ask the Father on your behalf because the Father himself loves you. It's based on love. And that love for you is not based on your works. Jesus continues, the Father's love for you is based on your faith, on your belief. Look at the end. He says, the Father himself loves you because, here's the reason for his love, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so it can be easy to fall into a snare to feel like God's view of you is dependent on how good you are before him. And we think that how he views us kind of rises and falls. But friends, God's love for us is not based on our deeds. It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our works. It's based on our belief, on our faith, no matter how imperfect it may be. Whenever we come and we follow Jesus, whenever we believe that he came from God, that he came to accomplish a specific mission, the mission of verse 28, that he came from the Father and have come into the world, now leaving the world to go to the Father. When we believe in Jesus, the Father loves us. And it's based on that promise, that belief. And so the love and peace that we experience from the Father is directly connected to our faith. It's directly connected to our belief, what it is that we're believing. It is the same thing Jesus said in John 14, 1, as he told his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. And what was his remedy to their troubled hearts, to their anxiety and fear? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The way we fight our anxiety is through belief. And our lack of peace stems from our lack of belief. Friends, if you're not experiencing the peace of God, it's because you are not believing the promises of God. 
we look even in just these three chapters in this farewell discourse, chapter 14, 15, and 16, and there are tons of beautiful promises in here. I had 16 originally I was going to read through, but for time we'll crunch it down to, we'll say, five or six of some of my favorites. But these are some of the promises that Jesus has told his disciples and has told us to give us peace. And so just hear what God is telling you today. In John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 19, because I live, then you also will live. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's the way that Jesus loves you, is the way the Father has loved him. This one may be my favorite, John 15, 14. Jesus just looks at him and he says, you are my friends. It can be, it can be easy sometimes to go, you know what, I have to love people because I have to love people. It's another thing to look at someone and go, hey, you're my friend. And that is God looking at you today, saying, you are my friend. John 16, 22, no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you. These are some of the promises in the way that God interacts with us. In the midst of difficulty, we need to run back to these promises. Listen, there's just three chapters in the Bible. There's like a th- there's 1,200 chapters in the Bible. There are promises littered throughout. As we go and we grab a hold of these, we begin to hide them in our heart. The way that we experience peace is by believing his promise. That's where we find it, underneath it all. Secondly, we see that there is peace despite misbelief. Verses 29 through 32, Jesus has told them what he's come to do, and his disciples respond, and you can hear how confident they are. Oh, yeah, now you're speaking plainly, not using that figurative speech and metaphors and all that garbage. Now we know. We know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You can hear the confidence that they say this with. But we know that they didn't quite fully believe because we know it's about to happen. So does Jesus. Jesus tells them, hey, you believe now? Listen, in just like a couple hours, you're going to leave me. You're going to scatter. So you don't really believe all of this yet. But look at the way that Jesus interacts with them in the midst of it. And there's something incredibly important we see about the heart of God dealing with imperfect faith, with misbelief. As the disciples come and they say confidently, we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus could have easily, and if I was him, probably would have said, listen, you guys have no idea how little you believe what you just said. Right? It's like that line in the end of the new Star Wars, Last Jedi. Luke Skywalker's there, and it's, oh, I won't say anything. You know what? Spoiler alert, I'm not going to say anything. It's just like the end of Star Wars. Who knows what happens? Got to go check it out. But Jesus looks at him, and if I were Jesus, I think I would say, listen, everything that you just said is untrue because you're about to leave me. Kind of smack him around a little bit, but that's not what Jesus does. What did he just tell them? He just told them, I love you. You're my friends. The Father himself loves you. Knowing those words that came out of his mouth were knowing what they were about to go and do. That he loved them tenderly. And even on the other side of this, he offers them still peace in 33 and tells them, I want you to have my peace, but you can take heart because I've overcome the world. That he deals with them gently in the midst of their imperfect faith. And we see the way in which God handles those who have a weak faith. It reminds me of Isaiah 42.3 where Isaiah writes and says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
Now, a reed is that little thing like in a swamp. It's a green stick. with like a corn dog on the end of it. Um, and Isaiah is saying, if one of those is broken, if one of those is bent, he won't come and break it. He comes and deals gently. Or a burning wick. Look, I kept this blowing just for this illustration. When you blow a candle out and it's just smoldering there at the end and there's just small little faint embers of red left, a burning wick, it says that Jesus comes and deals gently with them. But even in the smallest demonstrations of faith, as weak and imperfect as they may be, Jesus comes softly and tenderly. He comes and he will not break it. He will not extinguish it. He will not quench it. But he comes in the midst and he continues to encourage, to build up. He has a father's heart as he comes and deals with his imperfect children. That God does not just smack us around when we fall short. He continues to remind us of his promises. I myself love you. You are my friends. Even when you're about to turn and abandon me, I love you. Even when you're faithless, I will remain faithful. Finally, we see that this peace can be had through victory. In verse 33, as Jesus concludes kind of this entire statement and says, I've said these things to you. Now, these things most recently, probably here in the last couple sentences, but more entirely the entire past five hours. Jesus said, I've told you all of these things. I've washed your feet. I've told you about the love that I have for you. I've told you you should love one another. I've told you I'm going to prepare a home for you. I've told you I'm coming back to get you. I've told you that I'm sending my spirit to help. I've told you that you can continue in this world to abide in me to be able to bear fruit, and I in you. I've told you that the world will hate you and oppose you, but I've told you the helper is on his way to be able to do the work of God. And I've told you that there is joy that you can have that cannot be touched. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. As Jesus tells them these promises, He's told them this so that they can have peace. And look and see where the peace is found. It's not in this world. It's not in your circumstances. It's not how good your life is going. It's in Christ. Look, if you're you're a highlighter, an underliner, underline those two words. In me, you may have peace. Friends, that is the only place where our peace may be found. The moment we try to find it on our own or try to control our circumstances, our life around us, it will take about two weeks before it starts to get out of control. And we'll start to feel anxious because we are not God and we cannot control our lives no matter how good we think we are at it. Eventually, it will spin out of control and we'll be driven to anxiety unless we understand these promises. Unless we understand that God is in control of every single bit of it and we can trust him and in Christ, we can have peace. Because Jesus doesn't look at him and say, hey, listen, you're gonna have peace because I'm gonna remove all the difficulty from your life. Again, this is part of a stream of Christianity that's a lot on TV today, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that will say, if you have enough faith, then God will make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. Because that's what God wants for you. He will remove your trials because God wants you to experience blessing, quote unquote. But listen, Jesus here does not tell them that he will remove the difficult times from their life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He promises them tribulation. Look at verse 33. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's coming. Jesus doesn't say, I will remove it for you. Jesus says, in the midst of it, I will give you peace. 
And that peace that you can have doesn't come from you or your circumstances or how big your bank account is, how good your job may be, or how obedient and perfect your family may look. That peace comes because I have overcome the world. That's the basis of our peace. That's the basis of our courage. As Jesus ends here with this final kind of sending off, he says, but take heart for I have overcome the world. That phrase, take heart, doesn't just mean like, hey, cheer up, guys, put a smile on your face. In the Greek, this is more kind of the sense of taking courage. Go, take courage, take heart. In in this picture, almost being able to go into battle. Jesus is saying, as you go into the world, as you go into this war, you can take heart because I've already won. As you go into this battle, you can have peace because the war has already been won. And so no matter what your circumstance may be or what your difficulties, trials, or problems may be, that we can have peace because Christ has overcome. Your greatest problem has already been dealt with. And it puts all the other problems in our life in proper perspective. Because they're still there. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants you to look at these small problems in our life and make them feel like they're larger than they are and begin to overwhelm us. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you know, step back. Look at what has happened. You have been redeemed and you are now a friend and a child of God. He loves you and your greatest problem has been dealt with. So you can now take courage and deal with the things in your life as you go forward and puts them in their proper scope. So whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you walk into a house that's full of just craziness, take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. Ryan, Melissa, as you guys get ready to head back to Africa and walking into a difficult context that's predominantly Muslim, you can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. That's the hope that we have, that it doesn't fall on your shoulders. He's already won. And you can go and he's going to send you some help as his spirit goes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the hope that we have as we go forward. And so we see Jesus close this farewell discourse with his disciples by reminding them about what's to come. That they will go through difficulty. They will experience sorrow. They will have tribulation. But in the midst of it all, Jesus offers them joy and peace. And so today... May we hear this same man standing here today from this book telling us who claim to be sent from God, offering us the same thing. Is your life filling up with sorrow? Are your days becoming more and more riddled with problems and anxiety and fear? Jesus stands here today and offers you joy and peace. If we believe in him, there is no one who can take it from us. If you will come, if you will love him, If you will believe, will you believe today and find a joy that's permanent and a peace that's transcendent? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time to be able to come and be reminded of your grace in our lives. God, that you are the one who has won this war, that you have overcome our greatest enemies, death and sin and sorrow, and you have offered us peace and you've offered us joy. God, help us to be able to believe your promises today. Thank you for coming and overcoming the world, God. Help us to be able to take heart, to believe these truths, God. And thank you for your son and for saving us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.